Longevity and aging is such an interesting field of research. And there is some super exciting research out there about the process of aging. In this episode, we had the absolute pleasure to speak with Eleanor Shiki, the creator of the Shiki Science Show, currently working on a PhD focusing on P53 and cellular senescence. In this episode, we dove into some very exciting research in the longevity and aging field. We dove into cellular senescence, what makes a cell become senescent and how to get rid of senescent cells through senolytics and senomorphics. We talk about sirtuins, the seven different kinds of sirtuins and their role in the aging process, as well as NAD+. We go into P53, what P53 is, why it's important, and why you can't just pump more P53 into your body to make you live longer. And to wrap up this conversation, we touch on telomeres, myths about longevity, how to start a successful YouTube channel, and the $100 question, what can individuals do to live longer? So pop in some earbuds and get comfy because we are diving into the episode about everything longevity and aging with Eleanor Shiki right now. Okay, Eleanor, thank you so much for being here. Sierra and I have been super excited for this. We can't wait. Hello, thank you for having me on. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yay, okay. So I wanted to kind of like start off the conversation with an experiment that has always kind of like mystified me. I've always been like super kind of wowed by it. So I guess the scientific name is heterochronic parabiosis. Is that how you pronounce it? Bias, yes. Oh, yay. I'm so glad. <laughs> and so I guess like the gist of it is like you take like uh, like a young rat and like an old rat together and like, you tie their skins together. And like after a couple of weeks, then like the like, the old rat, it starts to kind of like have these like it starts to look young again. Right. Like it's it's gray fur turns like brown and it's like muscles get rejuvenated and has greater mobility. And th- this seems so like strange to me. How does that happen? Like what is going on in this experiment? Yeah, so you're right. It's a very interesting experiment. And so the idea is that they're effectively sharing a circulatory system. So it's not just something you do with rats. You, in theory, could do it with any organisms um, that have a circulatory system. And so it's been repeated in mice as well as just in rats. And so effectively, the young mouse or the young rats and the old older version are sharing a circulatory system. And so any factors that's in the blood. So in blood, it's not just about your red blood cells. You have all sorts of hormones, signaling molecules, and yeah, other factors in your blood that are then therefore getting shared between the young and the old mice. And so it kind of raises an interesting question is, is there something in the bloods of young mice that could be influencing the old mice? And so a more recent experiment, well, I say recent now, it was done in 2005, did this in mice, and they found that when they had the young and the old mice share a circulatory system, they saw many rejuvenative effects in the old mice. And so it raises two questions though, is there something in the young blood that's helping the old mice? Or is it just there's something in the old blood that's getting diluted by the fact that it's now sharing a system with the young mice? And actually, initially everyone thought it was more likely to be the former hypothesis that there might be factors in young blood that could be extracted and harvested that could be promoting these rejuvenative effects. But a more recent study seems to be more in favor of the latter hypothesis that actually just diluting the old blood and maybe diluting the bad factors in the blood, so to speak, is actually what's causing this this beneficial effect. 
And so a more recent study used something called neutral blood exchange. And so basically you don't have to do this gory process of fusing yeah. the circulatory systems. You can just take an old mice and do something called neutral blood exchange, where basically you just remove the, the plasma from their blood and then replace it with saline solution of a protein that kind of maintains the homeostatic potential. And just that kind of clean out, so to speak, of the old blood and maybe removal of these like detrimental factors showed similar rejuvenative effects. And so I think that's way more exciting because it seems a much safer solution. And it's actually something that's already pretty mainstream. It's done in humans already. It's called a therapeutic plasma exchange. So that's definitely exciting. Yeah. Oh, it's thank you for that. That's uh, that makes it a lot more clear. And I guess like what in the first place then kind of like causes aging? Is, is it, I, I know it's a super broad question, but like, well, we can get into like the details after, but like, you know, like what causes aging like in the first place? Sure. I mean, you're right. That is a very big question. Um, <laughs> I wish I had the full answer. But effectively, I think when most people think of aging, they think of the kind of phenotypic effects. So wrinkling skin, get aches and pains, memory loss. But actually, it's more interesting to think about it in terms of the molecular underpinnings, what's happening at the cellular level and, and the organ level that could be manifesting these different uh, phenotypic changes. And the reason why that's interesting to understand is because if we know exactly what's changing in a cell or in a tissue, then we can maybe do something about it. And so the best way to kind of understand aging is that it is just kind of a gradual deterioration, accumulation of damage, and also a reduction in like the repair pathways to deal with the damage. And actually, probably the best way to uh, illustrate this is through a kind of now famous review article that was published in the field that defines aging through 10 different hallmarks. And so these include things such as damage in DNA. It includes things such as the accumulation of aggregated and misfolded proteins. So you're likely have heard of Alzheimer's disease. And a very key characteristic of Alzheimer's disease are these amyloid beta plaques in the brain. And so they're basically just misfolded aggregates. And I mean, it's so unclear how it's involved in the process, but they, they're definitely correlative with age as well as things such as cellular senescence, which is, I guess, what I mainly study in the lab. You may have heard them be described as so-called zombie cells, but they're like cells that no longer divide and they secrete all sorts of things from the cells, including like inflammatory factors. And so there doesn't seem to be necessarily one key causal reason for aging. And the other thing to point out is that all of us are very different. And we might be aging more in different ways than others. And even within ourselves, our tissues might be aging at different rates. And so this is all kind of emerging ideas coming out of the field. And so basically we don't have the answer to the question yet, but it's something we're working on. Yes, for sure. And you mentioned cellular senescence. So I'd love to get into that a bit more. So you mentioned how, you know, cellular senescence. Yeah, it's like when a cell kind of like stops dividing. So what would kind of cause a cell to become like senescent in the first place? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there are actually many different ways you can cause a cell to become senescent. Kind of the general way in which it works is that you've stressed the cell out. And so if you stress the cell, that could be something by actually inducing DNA damage or having some kind of oncogene. So a gene protein that's basically trying to promote a cell to keep on dividing, which mm. could eventually cause cancer. And so these are all kind of stressful situations for a cell because it's doing things uncontrollably or it's accumulated some damage and 
the cell basically knows that something's not quite right, something's a bit wrong. And so it activates something known as a DNA damage response. Um, and basically it causes the cells to stop dividing. It kind of stops it in its tracks, which kind of makes sense because if you stop dividing, you've got time now to think about what's gone wrong. Where's it gone wrong? Can we fix it? And so that's effectively kind of the starting point to cellular senescence is awareness that there's some form of damage. And then one would hope that the cell could repair this damage and continue with its life and keep replicating or just doing its normal function. But sometimes the damage is persistent, it keeps on acting. And then a cell, somehow we're still trying to work out, transitions slowly into something known as cellular senescence. Um, And this is an irreversible cell cycle arrest, which is kind of beneficial because if you've got a cell that's got some genetic mutation or some kind of damage, we stopped it from replicating and therefore we kind of also hopefully have a kind of tumor suppressive mechanism. Um, but at the same time, as I've already mentioned, it develops a so-called secretory phenotype, which is also potentially beneficial because it can communicate with cells in the surrounding um, environment, maybe telling them that there's something bigger going on, maybe you've damaged a whole organ and it's good to let your cellmates know this too, or mm-hmm. to communicate with immune cells to come in and also try and uh, clear the damage. But at the same time, it's secreting these inflammatory factors, which could be causing more damage elsewhere. And so there's like uh, pros and cons to it. And how do you like get rid of like senescent cells then, like get them out of the body or the cell stream or whatever? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that again, that's really kind of, hot top question at the moment in the field so cellular senescence is not just seen as something that accumulates of age it's also seen in early developments helps us become our final versions of ourselves and so there are ways in which there seems to be some kind of immune recognition so-called immune surveillance of senescent cells and so they can kind of get cleared and so this is kind of what sets cellular senescence apart from another process you may have heard of known as apoptosis where a cell kind of self-destructs. In senescence, it seems like you need other cells to come in and clear the senescent cell. And so, as I mentioned with aging, our immune system is also going to age as well. And so that deficiency seems to decrease over time. And that may be a reason why we see an increase in senescent cells as we age. And so because if that system is kind of not working, there's now a lot of research developing so-called senolytics. And so these would be drugs that selectively kill senescent cells and leave your like healthy cells healthy that's by trying to like exploit some differences in senescent cells such that only they're going to be targeted another interesting potential problem from that is you've now cleared a cell but you maybe now have got some gap in the tissue maybe it wasn't a good thing to do that and so you also want to somehow not just clear the damage but also activate like the stem cells or cells that can uh, replicate and also replace so that's also an important factor to consider. Yeah, for sure. And then I think, is it senolytics and senomorphics, which are like two different ways like to get rid of senescent cells, right? Which one, like which one do you think is the is the better way of the two, like to get rid of senescent cells? Okay, so just so, yeah, to provide some definition. So senolytics, as I mentioned, are like senolitis is a way to think about it. So you're like lighting, you're killing the senescent cell. Senomorphics has a kind of a strange name, but it's slightly different because this time the senomorphic doesn't kill the senescent cell. The senescent cell stays there. But what you do is you suppress the secretory phenotype. So you might be able to stop it from secreting these inflammatory factors. And so 
as I just said about the whole replacement factor, maybe selenomorphics could be more beneficial because you suppress the bad side of senescence, the, the inflammatory factors being secreted, but you don't completely remove it. So you maintain the structure of, of an organ or a tissue. So yes, yeah, anamorphic might just depress certain aspects of the secretory phenotype. So maybe you stop the bad parts, but you keep the good part that's going to activate stem cells or promote like extracellular tissue rearrangements. So I think that's definitely got potential. We can work out how exactly we could stop the bad parts and promote the good parts. But there's also a lot of promising mouse data using semiolytics where they've extended lifespan and health span of the mice. So I don't know. I mean... I'd like to think that there's possibilities of both of them kind of, yeah, I think there's definitely room to be optimistic. Yes, for sure. And then kind of moving out of, I guess, like cellular senescence, like another thing that like I've kind of learned about a bit, like kind of looking into it is like sirtuins and kind of like their potential in, you know, kind of reversing aging, what they do for the body, that sort of thing. So could you give us like a kind of a high overview of sirtuins and then we can kind of like dive into it if you're cool with that? Yeah, sure. So in us, we have seven different sirtuins. They're kind of conveniently named sirtuin 1 through to sirtuin 7. <laughs> and so they're a family of proteins, which is quite nice. And so they're all kind of structurally very similar, but they actually all do very different things. And they can be found in different locations of a cell. In terms of longevity, the two sirtuins you've probably heard of are sirtuin 1 and sirtuin 6. And so both of these sirtuins are found in the nucleus. So another thing that's worth mentioning is that these sirtuins, they're basically deacylases. So they de, like remove acyl groups that are deacylases. And so acyl groups are just, you can think of them as like tags that can be found on different proteins. So what they do is they use as another molecule in a cell, another metabolite called NAD+, <laughs> and they use that to remove acyl tags of proteins. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's effectively what they're doing. And so... The, these tags that are found on proteins can influence the protein's activity, could influence the location of that protein. And so sirtuins can be thought of as regulators of other proteins, if that makes any sense to all. So they would like turn the protein like on or off, like that sort of a thing? Exactly. That could be one of the things they do. But that's just born out of many things. So a sirtuin could interact with many different proteins. And so activating a sirtuin could have downstream effects inhibition of some proteins, activation of others. And so you can see how it kind of like suddenly gets a little bit complicated. Yes. And then NAD plus you mentioned, is that like an enzyme that works like with sirtuins? So you're almost right. So NAD plus is a cofactor. So it's not an enzyme. So an enzyme is a protein that catalyzes, it speeds up a reaction. Whereas NAD plus is like a molecule, a small molecule that you can find in the body. And effectively it's acts as a cofactor because it can bind to sirtuins and sirtuins need to have this NAD plus present for it to be able to perform its catalytic activity. And then correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe as you age, NAD plus levels decrease. So that's, yeah, currently that's what's thought to be the case. And you can see that in different tissues, you can see a decline in NAD plus. Um, And I guess on from that, there's been some hope that you could try and prevent aspects of aging by boosting NAD plus levels. Yeah, that was like going to be my next question. Like how would you increase like NAD plus levels then, and also sirtuins? Because I think that they all play like an important role like in keeping our bodies functioning. Yeah, they're all kind of interrelated. Mm-hmm. Our metabolism is very complicated, but also quite fascinating. 
although that does make it quite hard to study and I guess it's worth saying as well there is this is still like an emerging field and there's like controversy even amongst researchers as to how important these different things are in terms of the aging process but from like my more unbiased opinion what's been seen is that NAD plus declines of age as we just also mentioned and so in terms of what we can do about this one option is to kind of turn on the tap and somehow increase the levels of NAD plus the other thing you'd want to do is also prevent NAD plus from getting used up so there's like I guess two kind of ways of thinking about it and so in terms of the the first one increasing the levels of NAD plus there are now different precursors to NAD plus that have been given to mice and also been tested in some small human clinical trials that help to boost the levels of NAD plus in their bodies. And so that's one potential thing. So they're just supplements. So they're also currently seem to be safe. So they could just be taken to increase the levels. How effective they are for aging is still unclear, but it's something that could be done. So it's feasible. And then the second thing, as I mentioned, is inhibiting things that might be degrading NAD plus. And I mean, NAD plus is consumed by sirtuins as they perform their activities. You might think actually inhibiting sirtuins might be a good idea, but then that's not a good idea because as sirtuins are really important, they're actually quite important in DNA repair mechanisms. And as I mentioned, DNA damage is part of aging, so you don't want right. to mess up with DNA repair. So yeah, I've probably just confused your audience now, but what I'm trying to say is like there are possible ways of thinking about intervening and aging the manifestations of that and how it would implicate at the molecular level with some unclear mm-hmm. no you did a great job of explaining that so definitely bravo uh, thank you <laughs> yeah and then I guess another area that I've kind of something that I've read but again unclear about p53 I've heard that again like it's you know there's lots of studies that's been like done around it that's you know, can prevent aging. And again, so is it an enzyme protein? Is it naturally kind of found in the body like sirtuins and NAD plus? So you've asked the right person because P53 is central to my PhD research project. So I do know a lot about this uh, protein. So yeah, P53 is a protein. It's a gene that can be found in all of our cells. And most of our cells are pretty much expressing this protein all the time, but most of the time it gets degraded gets made and then just gets degraded but then when a cell gets stressed it suddenly gets stabilized and so the process you may remember I mentioned I guess like 10 or so minutes ago this DNA damage response is one of the critical things that p53 regulates so when a cell gets stressed p53 goes up and then p53 can promote things such as the cell cycle arrest by activating other so p53 isn't quite an enzyme but what it does is it binds DNA and it acts as a so-called transcription factor. So, so what does that mean? Like a ligase then? Uh, not a ligase. No. So it, imagine, you, so you have DNA and P53 binds to DNA and it does it in regions near genes. So genes mm-hmm. encode for RNA, which then can be used to make protein. And so by binding to DNA near genes, it can regulate the expression of that gene. So that kind of switch that gene on. And so... A cell gets stressed, P53 levels increase, it binds to DNA, it expresses certain genes, which then can be used to make protein. And it's those proteins that can then mediate the cell cycle arrest. So yeah, P53 regulates many different genes. And so cell cycle arrest is just like one aspect. It also influences metabolism. It also influences mitochondria signaling. And it's also involved somehow 
as we're emerging in our research, the security phenotype of senescent cells. So yeah, it's a bit of a jack of all trades. It's doing a lot of things in a cell. Yeah. Yeah. So does it like enhance senescent cells or like help to get rid of them? So it helps in causing a cell to become senescent. So it's it's not essential uh, per se, but it's one of the critical factors that um, is involved in that transition from a cell becoming stressed to actually entering, entering senescence. But this is where it gets interesting because P53, I've mentioned these tags, these A-cell tags. P53 can get these A-cell tags and that can influence its action, but it can also receive all sorts of different modifications and that can influence its activity, like where it binds in the DNA. And so if you've got a tag on P53 and it binds to a different site, it expresses, it turns on a different set of genes. And Mm -hmm. so depending on how P53 itself is regulated, you have a different outcome. And so these different outcomes could be the difference between a cell entering apoptosis, so cell death, or entering senescence. And so it's a very fascinating question as to how P53 itself is getting regulated. It's mad. It's, I mean, I'm confused most days. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I'm guessing, so as you age, does P53 levels go down? That's a good question. I actually don't know the answer to that. If anything, I would suggest they might go up because you've got more stress oh. cells in your body. So more cells are more likely to have it stabilized. So yeah, I think that's a, a hard question to answer. I don't entirely know what would happen. Yeah, so they're basically, it sounds like they kind of like help to like get rid of the senescent cells, almost like clean things up, right? Is that what I'm like, is that correct? They're definitely responding to the damage. And if aging is due to damage, then you can see it, PVC3 is being like a key responder to the aging process. And so there's kind of also been thought that why don't we just increase PVC3 levels yeah. to um, help to, you know, react to this damage. But actually, there can come to a point where having too much P53 could make a cell, you know, enter senescence more likely or apoptose more likely because it's you've got too much of it. And so it seems like you need a very fine balance of P53. As I said, it needs to be regulated in a very precise way to manifest like the correct response at the correct time. And so manipulating the levels might not necessarily be something you want to do. Nonetheless, I think there is still research looking into ways of trying to increase the amounts, as it definitely seems more likely that having more rather than less is going to be beneficial, as if you have less P53, you're more likely to get things like cancer. Yeah. And like, what is some of the research that you're doing right now for your PhD, kind of like around P53? Sure. So my project is looking at P53, but actually a mutated version of P53. So all of us we accumulate mutations of age and one mutation that's present in the majority of human cancers are mutations in P53, which as we now all hopefully understand, if you've got a mutation that inhibits or reduces the activity, you're more likely to develop cancer. And that's exactly what we see if you look at the genetics of different cancers. And so my question is, how does the presence of a mutation influence senescence and how we can use that to explore how the body responds initially to P53 mutations and yeah, understanding that very early stage. So before we even get to cancer, is there something going on initially within a cell that could help us to further understand ways to intervene either in cancer or even with aging? Mm. Oh, that's so interesting. Very cool. And then I guess another kind of topic that I wanted to kind of touch on was telomeres. I think that like everybody kind of understands what a telomere is. But I guess, do you want to kind of like give us a 
high overview and again we can kind of like go into and kind of break it down for people yeah sure so actually I probably should have mentioned with senescence that it's telomeres that most people associate with cellular senescence as that was where senescence was first defined by Leonard Hayflick I believe back in the 1950s now but telomeres are essentially repetitive sequences that are found at the ends of your DNA so our DNA isn't circular and connected together it's actually linear so it's got ends and if you've got think of things like shoelaces if you've got like a double-stranded DNA or like pieces of string wrapped together it could kind of unwind and that's ideally not a very good thing it's not very good for a cell to have that because things could get untangled and messed up and things could get fused together aberrantly so instead we have these things called telomeres and telomeres are kind of like protective caps at the ends of this linear piece of DNA. And so they help to provide some integrity to the DNA structure. The problem is, as a cell replicates, it doesn't fully replicate the whole DNA sequence due to the nature and how the molecular machinery operates. And so what happens is that every time a cell divides, these telomeres get a little bit shorter, such that after probably around 50 cell divisions, so replications, the telomeres have got so short that you've now lost that protective structure. And so the cell's now in trouble and it's not good for it to keep on dividing because then it's more likely to get mutations elsewhere and then enter senescence or to die, all these different things we've already spoken about. Yeah. And then is there a way to prevent telomeres from getting shorter? Or is it just like, like during like DNA synthesis, that's just like what happens? That definitely is. Because if you think about it, like we've all come from someone's like the fusion of gametes, yeah. right? So at some yeah. point there had to be some replacement. And so there's actually an enzyme called telomerase. And what telomerase does is it binds to these regions of telomeres and it extends them. So it oh, wow. synthesizes more. Um, the thing is, we don't have that expressed in majority of our cells. It's switched off. And again, you could kind of think that as being a cancer protective mechanism, because if a cell had somehow managed to overexpress telomerase, it could, in theory, keep on dividing without having to worry about this telomere shortening. But yeah, does that answer your question? <laughs> yes. Oh, no, it totally does. Yeah. So what would happen then if we put like a whole bunch of enzymes like that in our body like would that just like would that extend human lifespan then since like the telomeres would like be longer I meaning it would take like less time for them to shorten so I mean I believe there's someone people have actually done this they've used gene therapy oh, approaches to add telomerase to their cells I think what now seems to be the case is like I've explained that obviously our telomeres shorten they might enter senescence but in the grand scheme of aging, telomeres don't seem to actually have that much influence. So yeah, sure, we can add it back. But does that really have any noticeable impacts? So yeah, I mean, it's been a while since I really read the telomere literature, so I can't quite remember. It doesn't seem like it's as exciting as maybe we once thought. One other question. A cell, is it more likely to go into apoptosis or cellular senescence? Or is it that's just a, like either? That's a great question. And again, It seems to be the decision factor seems to be P53. And the thing is, we just don't (laughs) quite understand how it makes that decision yet. Obviously, I could like in the lab in terms of in vitro, so working in cell culture dishes, I would know, you know, what concentration of a drug could cause it to become senescent or to die. 
but it seems to depend on cell type. Obviously, these are very artificial uh, things that don't happen in the cell. And even then, we still don't know how P53 exactly is mediating that decision. But yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. I'm so excited for there to be like more research done in this area, you know, because I feel like just, you know, as more and more people get interested in it, I think we're going to have so much more like data. So then we can answer these questions, which is so exciting. Exactly. Yeah. And like just kind of on from that point, there are so many techniques now that we can use to get more data. So things like sequencing DNA is getting cheaper and cheaper. And the other thing is what we can do now is sequence the RNA that's in a cell so you can find out what that cell is expressing. So in the case of P53, we could stress the cell out and then actually go, oh, what's actually being expressed? And that might indicate where P53 is is binding to DNA and what genes it might be regulating. Problem is, it sounds simple and like I've even done this, like we have some part of my project's been getting some gene expression data after causing a cell to become senescent having all that data doesn't necessarily answer your question and I still think like just the basic like kind of biology approaches are also important and so I definitely think yeah these new approaches to um, increase the amount of data we collect are going to be useful but at some point you know cellular systems are very complicated and I would love to understand it myself but sometimes I think it's going to be like not comprehensible for my brain to, to comprehend yeah. and so obviously there's things like machine learning that's now emerging that could help to also you know deal with these problems but to some extent it's still a bit of a black box how they're working so I don't know if we'll ever truly know the answer doesn't mean yeah. we won't have some answer but whether or not I can interpret it is a different question yeah you know because we're so complicated right like any organisms will like specifically you know the human body you know it's so complicated so very hard to understand <laughs> what is the kind of like the most promising or like the best like anti-aging kind of study that or experiment that you've read about that you're most excited by that's a good question um so I suppose there are two kind of overlapping things obviously we've spoken a lot about analytics already and obviously that being my field of interest that's naturally something that I kind of gravitate towards as being interesting but actually I think one of the things most people are excited about at the moment is a process known as cellular reprogramming so I think it was back in 2008 now the Nobel Prize was given to Shinya Yamanaka for identifying four different factors that if you express them in differentiated cells so cells that like a neuron cell, a skin cell, but they have a specific function, could cause that cell to become a stem cell. So a cell that can replicate, can turn into different types of cells. And that opens a really interesting paradigm where you could basically take a cell that's no longer dividing, get it to divide and use it to generate and make more cells. So one thing is like regenerative medicine. And also you can, unlike organ transplants, at the moment, you would get organ transplants from a different person and there's going to be some kind of like genetic mismatch and your body's going to recognize it as being foreign. But what if I could say, you know, in 20 years time, we could actually use our own skin cell and use that to generate yeah. um, something that is the same genetic material comes from us and uh, something that um, would therefore wouldn't get rejected by our, our immune system. And so I think that opens up a lot of like, potentially some really good therapeutic strategies that could have yeah really big potential for how we treat different diseases. Yeah and one thing I did want to clarify that a lot of people talk about 
is when they talk about this field, they talk about lifespan a lot, but what we don't really touch on or don't really talk about is health span. And I know there's a difference between the two. Can we kind of um, go over exactly what health span is and the difference between that and lifespan? Exactly. Yeah. So I think most people can hopefully understand lifespan um, as being basically how many, how long we've managed to live since we're, we're born. But health span is actually something that I'm more interested in, which is basically it's the number of days you live in good health. So without any diseases. And so as we can observe in the general population at the moment, we are seeing an increase in lifespan. People are living longer, but that doesn't necessarily correlate with increasing health span. And so that kind of gap between our health span and lifespan is also slightly getting bigger. But what we want to do is compress that gap such that you can also extend health span, because by doing that, you're reducing the incidences of these different diseases and Along with that, you're improving quality of life and also reducing the cost it takes to have to treat all these different diseases separately. Yeah. And like, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of kind of talk in the area about, you know, how you can live longer, you know, like these supplements, this and this, you know, and have a longer health span as well. What are some like ideas, you know, or concepts kind of like based by science that you can use to expand, you know, your own health span or lifespan? Yeah. So obviously I've already mentioned these things like cellulitics and the NAD precursors, but these kind of supplements, I think they're still being tested and I wouldn't necessarily recommend them for anyone who yeah, is young and healthy at the moment. <laughs> I think in terms of what anyone could do is obviously start with diet and exercise and sleep. Sleep is also something that's easily forgotten about because I guess, I mean, I like to, I would love to be up all night reading papers, watching films, whatever, <laughs> I, you know, but I know that it's also good for my body to have that rest and time to restore. One thing being very closely associated with sleep loss is neurodegenerative diseases, because I mentioned even at the start about these, these amyloid beta plaques that accumulate in the brain. Actually, it's believed that as we sleep, there's opportunity for them to, these plaques that do emerge even in, like throughout life to get like kind of washed out and cleared. So mm-hmm. sleep's very important. Diet as well. I mean, everyone knows that if they start eating badly for a week, they feel pretty bad as well. So that's a kind of a given. There's still a bit controversy over what is the best diet for longevity, whether you should eat less protein, more plant protein if you can, to have a ketogenic diet, to a high fat diet, low carbohydrate. I mean, it's still unclear. And I think definitely what will emerge in the coming years is that it's going to very much depend on the individual, even like down the line, we might have so-called nutrigenomics where they can infer from our genomic data and our environmental location what might be the best diet for us i would just say try and eat foods that you know we are eating so eat more like whole foods i think it's easy to yeah eat a lot of food products but you're not entirely sure what's in them like i mean one thing that i'm in support of at the moment but also skeptical about are all these vegan alternatives like fake meats whilst also i think it's a great way to reduce for those who are worried about overconsumption of meat and being environmentally friendly, I am in support of that. But at the same time, they're not necessarily the healthiest products at the moment yeah. due to the kind of saturated stuff and unknown things I've never heard of that are in them as well. Or so, words you can't even pronounce. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the second thing. And then like lastly, exercise. I mean, continuously exercise has been associated with better health span. So I think that's kind of a given obviously not over exercise but just making sure even just like simple things like walking another thing that's also emerging which is kind of a science that isn't always taken too seriously it's just like mental well-being 
And I guess the reason why, at least from my perspective, it's often overlooked is because we didn't really understand the kind of biochemical underpinnings. Like people talk about dopamine, melatonin, but besides that, how it's all kind of manifested within our bodies is still quite unclear. Like how does mood influence senescent cells? I think that's a quite a serious question that could be addressed, but it's how we address it. And yeah, I think there's all sorts of interesting ideas, but I think getting enough sleep, a good diet, exercise, and having a good mental state is probably the most important things to get right first before we start thinking about these more advanced strategies. I've yeah. also heard of like fasting being kind of part of that. It, what does fasting do? Like, does that kind of like increase lifespan or health span? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a kind of huge topic. And I, yeah, I should have mentioned that. So it's not just about what you eat. It's also when you eat and also how much. So fasting is having a period of time when you're not consuming. It's the definition of fasting. And so basically when we eat, it activates certain signaling pathways in our bodies, including things like the sirtuins. And when we're eating, our body's like, okay, we've got food, we can, we can grow. So it might promote a cell to replicate. And during times when we're not eating, instead of these growth pathways, more restorative signaling pathways are promoted instead. And these include like increased autophagy. So autophagy is a process that kind of digests and recycles damaged components within a cell so it gives again it might give uh, the body an opportunity to kind of how sleep does give uh, the body opportunity to kind of repair and get rid of any damage but it's not necessarily about fasting and not eating because yeah so in terms of fasting is you're not eating but you can eat a normal amount of food but then there's also been studies done in mice and flies and worms where they do something called caloric restriction. So they didn't cause malnourishment, but they just reduced the intake by around 60 to 80%. And that's continuously been shown in lots of different muscle organisms to extend their lifespan. So yeah, that's kind of the emerging science around it. But I think that the balance is trying to get it right because you don't want to become malnourished. And it's even people who eat a normal amount of food and diet today because their diet's not correct are malnourished. And so it's very hard to to kind of promote these strategies if people aren't aware of exactly what it is they're eating. So yeah, definitely consult your doctor for any of this kind of stuff. But yeah, they're, they're definitely promising if they can be performed correctly. Yeah, that's very interesting, interesting way to think of that. And I actually want to put you in a scenario that has to do with um, longevity. So if someone were to say to you, why are we wasting energy, time and money to make humans live for like, 100 or 200 more years when there are people in the world who don't have no enough to eat or we have bigger problems like climate change like how would you respond to that yeah so from my perspective like in terms of lifespan that isn't necessarily what I'm interested in for me it's more about the health span aspect and as I also alluded to earlier the idea is that instead of using all the money we do currently to treat different diseases if we target aging itself, it's more of a cost-effective strategy because you can prevent all the diseases and you just kind of, you know, you target it early. And so all that money that's saved and also the increased productivity of those who now are healthier as they live longer would help to I mean, enable people to do more meaningful work and also use that money to invest in things like finance solutions for climate change or improving energy production. Yeah, as you say. So I think by tackling aging it opens the opportunity to address many other problems. It does. I like the health span side of things kind of better too than the longevity, you know, because like we all, you know, like diseases like cancer, you know, that 
lots of like young people or even people 50 or 60, you know, have suffered from it's it's really sad you know so if we could kind of push that out for longer so people are healthy for longer you know and then like have like less time in hospitals or stuff that would just be that would really be amazing yeah exactly yeah and then I guess kind of the last point I wanted to kind of touch on before we sign off is you have a YouTube channel which I really like the Shiki Sign Show we will link it below for everybody but oh no it's amazing like you explain so many topics and just the the drawings everything but the question that we had for you is like do you have any advice for people who wanted to start a YouTube channel you know and kind of teach others about things that they're passionate about and kind of know a lot about yeah for sure so I mean I guess the first thing for me to share would be like my motivations like for why I started in the first place I guess before I even started YouTube, I used to just blog. I guess yeah, my talents for like the whole YouTube video production was not there at, at the beginning. And if you think about it, if you've got a video, the first aspect you need to kind of get right is a script. And a script is very similar to how you would write out a blog. And for me, I guess my kind of selfish reason for starting a blog was that I had some kind of like database or some kind of track record of the things that I was learning about and explained in a way that obviously I explained it so it's in a way that I understand so it was like a, a record of like how people might write a diary of what they do it was like a, it was just a written record of interesting things I'd learned about that I could use in my exam work or just things that I generally found quite interesting and through that you know I think one important tip or advice is just to do things to stuff else in the world because even like I made, wrote this blog but now I never like really read it and so for me that I couldn't care less <laughs> Yeah, it was about having some place where you have collected your ideas together. And I think it's kind of a nice feeling knowing that you are putting stuff out in the world, even if no one does see it at the time. And then for me, it's a portfolio, like something to show for all of your hard work. Exactly. Yeah. But you didn't necessarily have to see it that way. I think if you're just curious about something, it didn't matter if you're not going to. I mean, I've made this channel now. I mean, I guess maybe it would help in jobs, but it's not like I'm applying for university and I need it to put on my CV. I do it because I enjoy making those videos. And so yeah, then transition to video making came later when I felt like I had a bit more time to do it, but also because I felt just with science communication is so much of it is visual. And I think I'm a very visual learner. So I wanted to kind of emulate that again, because if I've made a video, I could rewatch it and understand more of what I'd learned than if I just read through a blog post. So Again, as not, I mean, obviously the, the benefits that anyone can watch these things and can also learn from it. But yeah, at the same time, it's, I mean, I watch my own videos back because I'm, oh yeah, I, that's what I learned about. And I think visual media is a really good way to learn. I know people say that they're audio listeners or whatever, but I, I think that's kind of not true. I think everyone's a visual learner at heart. Yes. Um, so do I, because like you need to see things, right? Exactly. But then maybe we're just visual learners saying this. I don't know. But I think there's definitely benefits to having it. Yeah, my advice is just to, put something out there it doesn't matter if no one sees it because eventually your skills will grow as you practice and you do it more often and you'll learn more about yourself from doing these things and also learn about a lot of topics that you find interesting yeah that is some awesome advice and um, overall this episode has been so informative and so amazing with all of the stuff that you've given us and given our viewers so I want to thank you so much Eleanor for coming on the podcast and do you have any more um, final thoughts that you want to say before we end this off yeah, thank you both for having me on. Always great to talk to people who are interested in what I do and what the field's researching in, especially, yeah, to a younger audience to kind of you know, inspire you as like, it would be like, yeah, it'd be amazing for me to be able to do that to your audience as well. It's always great to get more people into the field and get them excited about science because, you know, I think back to my times at school and often, you know, there wasn't those role models there to kind of activate people. And I think 
it's a shame that there's so much missed opportunities. So hopefully I have somehow given some kind of excitement about the fields and maybe encourage people to enter science or to make videos or write blogs. So I think the more we can add positively to this world, the better. So yeah, just thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on to this platform and to talk to your audience. Thank you.